Mussolini of World War II notoriety once took his fingernail and scratched a table and said, I want to make a mark on the world like that. And that later proved his undoing. This morning I want to discuss with you for the appropriate time allotted a man who made his mark on the world. This morning, Moses, a man who teaches us how to keep from going wrong. I really believe that by and large the Church of our Lord today is composed of people who want to do right. I really do. But they struggle. And because of that, they oftentimes cry out and say, What is there that I can remember? What is there that I can apply? What can I do that will really help me to live right? And I believe that to a measurable degree, the answer is found in a study of this man, Moses, who made his mark on the world. And from the text that Brother Thomas read a moment ago, we find the reasons why Moses did not go wrong. I would like to begin, first of all, this morning by observing from that passage that one reason why Moses did not go wrong was because Moses did not lose faith. Did you observe when the reading was given? That verse 23 says, By faith Moses. Verse 24 says, By faith Moses. And down in verse 27, By faith he. And then again in 28, Through faith he. There is a repetitious emphasis upon the faith of this man. Now it's interesting to note that the first time you read of faith in this passage, that the faith has reference to the faith of his parents. But the last three times we have faith having reference to his own personal faith. Now what is the point? Simply that there ordinarily is an inseparable attachment between the faith of the parent and the faith of the child. Solomon said, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old he will not depart. Now that text does not mean that there are no exceptions. If there were no exceptions, that text would teach the impossibility of falling from grace. But the general rule is that when a child has been brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, it is that he then will remain true to the Lord all of his life. And thus thrice blesses a child who is brought up in a godly Christian family and home. Yes, by faith his parents, and then by faith Moses. But I want us to notice this morning when we talk about the faith of Moses, the various areas in which he exercised his faith. You will notice, first of all, that in verse 27 the text says, For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Thus we note that he had faith in the existence or in uh, the presence of God. He believed in the existence, I repeat, of God. 
Friends, I don't recall any time in my life, and I think that probably I would say that that's the case with all present today, in which I ever really entertained any serious doubt in my mind about the existence of God. I just don't really remember that. But I want you to know that we're living, as we sometimes say, in a different world. And our children today are being barraged from every standpoint by infidelic material that will cause them to doubt, if not to outrightly deny, the existence of God Almighty. There was one professor who entered into a college classroom and said, on the first day of class, how many of you still believe in God? Implicitly saying what? You won't when you get through with this course. They're being barraged by every imaginable type of infidelic material. That being the case, do not be surprised if one day your children come to you and say, Mother, Daddy, how do we know there is a God? How do we know that Jesus really is divine? Now, how are we going to handle that? Are we going to say, Son, you know better than that. Get, go, go on and think of something that's wholesome. You've been read to know better. Is that the way we're going to handle that? Indeed not. That will simply amplify the problem rather than handling the problem. Today we need evidential material taught constantly. Our minds need to be saturated with evidential material that will assist us in establishing beyond any shadow of a doubt the fact that there is a God. And so though that information is absolutely just, you know, so wide in its scope and so deep in its nature, I want from that pool of material to lift only one evidence of the existence of God out of the many pieces of evidential material and discuss it briefly. In my judgment, it is probably the strongest line of evidence that we have at our disposal. Friends, everybody, including atheists, including infidels of varying strength, Believe in a moral code. Now, that's fundamental. Now, to substantiate that, suppose a man says, I don't believe there is a God. All you have to do to settle the issue is ask him one question. And it settles it. Ask him one question, and the, the debate is over. What's the question? Ask him this. Do you have any objection? to a man entering your house one night and uh, molesting your teenage daughter, killing your wife, stealing your automobile and $1,000. you have any objection to that? And he will rise up in a rage. And he'll say, object to that? Why, well, certainly I would object to a man doing that. And any time he says, I object to that, the argument is over. All you have to say then is, why? Why do you object to that? You see, the moment he says, I object, 
to someone slaying my wife, molesting my daughter, and stealing my goods, he has admitted what? He has admitted that there is a code that governs moral conduct. Otherwise, he could not say, it is wrong. I object to it. It's always been very strange to me that some of the leaders in the humanistic movement of our day, and incidentally, humanism is a denial of God and the enthronement of the person, that some of the leaders of the humanistic movement of our given day and time are Jewish in their persuasion. That's been very strange to me. You know why? Because these folks have spent millions of dollars to do what? Track down the Nazi criminals. Well, why do that? What was wrong with Hitler killing six million Jews? What was wrong with that? What was more wrong with Hitler killing six million Jews, I say, more wrong than killing six million cockroaches? What's the difference? Someone says, Brother Winkler, you're being absurd. Oh, no, not absurd at all. What's the difference? Why, everybody says, you know that it's more different for a man to kill six million Jews than to kill six million cockroaches. Sure, I know that. But why? There's a, there is a moral ethic. There's a moral code. It was always strange to me during Reagan's regime that Gorbachev and his contemporaries and his predecessors always got in a feverish pitch, objecting to the Star Wars and the nuclear warfare. That always was very strange to me. Why would they be so exercised about nuclear war? What is wrong with killing three-fourths of this world's population by a nuclear explosion? What's wrong with that? You see, communism is atheistic. They don't believe in a God. Well, if there's no God, there's no moral code. What's wrong with a man advocating, you know, the fact of uh, killing three-quarters of the world's population? Why do they become so exercised about that when they didn't believe in God? Now, watch the development carefully. Everybody believes there is a moral code. Now, watch it. Morality comes from morality. What's the basis of that? The non-moral cannot produce the moral. That's what we call axiomatic. To say it is to accept it and to establish it. The non-moral cannot produce the moral. Third observation. Morality belongs to personality. There's nothing moral or immoral about this stand. Why? It's an object. Morality belongs then to whom? A person. To personality. Now, if there is a moral code, a moral ethic that governs our conduct, admitted by all, and the non-moral cannot produce the moral, and morality belongs to personality, what's the inescapable conclusion? There has always been a moral personality, and that's God. It's just that easy. And therefore, for a man to say there is no God, he would have to say to be consistent. 
that there is no code of moral ethics that governs my behavior among men. And I'll tell you one thing. When a man were to affirm that, I would not want him for a next-door neighbor. And so the issue is that Moses did not go wrong because Moses did not lose faith. He believed in God. And ladies and gentlemen, when a man loses faith in God, it is then that all of his moral moorings then have been forgotten. And so today when a man says there is no God, and then he's challenged then from whence came man, and he says that we are simply evolving, and we're now at this plateau, and that from a lower form of uh, life. Let me tell you this. You convince a man that he came from a lower animal form, and he will begin to live like an animal. Why? Where's his morals? A man, my friends, is unsafe without belief in God. That's so fundamental. But not only did Moses believe in God by way of the person of God, but the text also says what? That he also believed in the promises of God. The text says, For he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Look at the promises of God out there. And he believed in them. We read in Second Peter chapter 3 and 9, God is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Isn't that wonderful to contemplate? God is not slack concerning his promise. He will fulfill. In fact, that's the fundamental theme of the book of Joshua, that our God is a promise-keeping God. In fact, you will read in the book, and as he promised, just study the book and watch that, as he promised, as he promised. He brought his promises to pass. Like he promised Abraham, I'll give to you the land of Canaan. What happened in Joshua's day? He gave them the land of Canaan. What? As he promised. He's a promise-keeping God. Every promise of God is built on four pillars. The first pillar is God's omnipotence, his power to do all. The second pillar is God's omniscience, his power to know all. The third pillar is God's omnibenevolence, his goodness without limitation. And number four, his integrity. Now, his omnipotence gives him the power to fulfill any promise he made. His omniscience will not let him forget any promise he made. His omnibenevolence will not let him disappoint man. And his integrity will not let him misrepresent the matter. So any time God makes a promise unto me, and I began to doubt it, I must ask myself why. Is it because I don't think God has the power? That reflects upon his omnipotence. Has God forgotten? That reflects upon his omniscience. Did God just simply, you know, misrepresent the matter by way of canalizing me to live right now, will give, when all the time he did not intend to give? That reflects upon his omnibenevolence. Or did God misrepresent the matter? That reflects upon his integrity. And any time I reflect upon either God's omnipotence, God's omniscience, or God's integrity, or God's omnibenevolence, that, my friends, is a very serious offense. Therefore, when the text says, shall be saved, that's a promise predicated upon what? 
He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. So the moment that I become that baptized believer, what? I can claim the promise. I need not doubt my salvation. Why? For God is a promise-keeping God. When the Bible says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you, I can claim that promise. Why? Because God is a promise-keeping God. Why didn't Moses go wrong? The strength of his faith. It was because he believed in the presence of God, God's existence. And then he believed relative to God's nature that God meant exactly what he said, said exactly what he meant. God would carry through with every threat, and he would also fulfill every promise. And so today, as never before, may we sing, standing on the promises of Christ my King. Our God, our Savior, they are promise-keeping people, persons. That's why then Moses did not go wrong. And then when I turn back to the text of the morning, I see, secondly, another reason why Moses did not go wrong. The text says, verse 25, he chose rather. He chose rather. In other words, here he was. He had to make a choice. Every day is judgment day, so let's make sure we use a lot of good judgment. He chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Why did he not go wrong? Because he watched his associates. Ladies and gentlemen, a number of years ago, we used to preach quite regularly to young people, and I've noticed these wonderful young folks that you have here. You're blessed. And thank you, Brother Curley, for remembering my prayer today. But we used to preach almost exclusively to young folks about watch your company. I've noted in the last several decades that that's not an emphasis exclusively to youth. I am very perplexed in observing in the church of the Lord today that many members of the church are choosing as their social associates people outside the church. That's fraught with grave danger. We need, irrespective of age, to watch our associates. There are several fundamental reasons why that's the case. In the first place, we need to watch our associates because we become like those with whom we associate. As the old maxim goes, he who lays with the dogs rises up with fleas. And again, he who associates with the cripple learns to limp. What's the point? We become like those with whom we associate. Indeed. That's why 1 Corinthians 15:33 says, Be not deceived, evil communications do what? Corrupt good morals or manners. That's what the text says about it. So sometimes we hear it said, Oh, they're not going to influence me. They're not going. In the time we say that, the text says, We are self-deceived. Be not deceived. God is not more. Evil communications corrupt good manners. If I say they do not, they will not, that says, number one, I'm deceived. Number two, if it were to happen, God would be more. We are influenced by those with whom we associate. When I was living in Fort Worth, 
I asked the elders, I said, brethren, what about us having a, uh, an activity for the young people on Sunday evening and discuss drugs? I said, we used to discuss alcohol, now it's drugs. And I think we could be of service to the young people of the area. They said, fine, no problem, good. Well, we've made preparation for it, a seminar, seminar on drugs. We had... Uh, a man who was a former user we had baptized in the federal penitentiary right close to our meeting house. We had the head of the crime lab who was a member of the Westbury congregation. We had a medical doctor who was well versed in the matter. And then we had a, uh, one of the members of the Pharmaceutical Association in Tarrant County, and they had the best visual presentation of that I've ever seen. And so we invited these four men to come and make presentations. We started at 2 o'clock, and we were to end at 3. The young people would not let us in. And I had told, prior to its beginning, I told my associate, I said, Boy, if we have 200 or 300 of these young people present today, I am going to rise and fly. I'm telling you, I'm going to be so happy. Our building seated 1,100 people, and by actual count, we had 1,300 young people present that afternoon. Do you want me to tell you out of these four men who related best to the young people? Someone says, that prisoner, he didn't even come in second place. The man that related best to those young people was the head of the crime lab, Brother D. Wheeler. Brother D. Wheeler didn't, as we sometimes say, know, did not know an adverb from an adenoid. But I want to tell you, he butchered the language and he would call them kids. That D voice, and he'd say, kids. But you talk about communicating, and I want to tell you what he said. He said, kids, if I bring ten young people into the crime lab in one day, one at a time, and I ask every one of them the same question, John, why did you get into trouble? Jane, why did you get into trouble? I get the same answer all ten times. And he said, do you know what it is? Mr. Wheeler, I got to running with the wrong crowd. It'll happen every time. And mothers and daddies, don't let the devil deceive you in thinking you don't have any responsibility or right of input into who your young people associate with. This idea of a mom and daddy say, I can't do it. I don't do it. And then we cop out, as the young people say. That simply is what? Abdicating of our responsibility. It takes work. And lots of it to rear children right. The idea of isolating ourselves, as it were, except for saying they have a place to put their heads at night and give them meals, and we don't invade the lives of our children. Well, that's an unthinkable thing. It'd be better not to bring them into the world than to rear children upon that basis. We need to watch associates. Because we become like those with whom we associate, that's so vital. Number two. We need to watch our associates because we are going to be judged by those with whom we associate. Amos 3 and 3 says, Can two walk together except they be agreed? Which means what? 
We gravitate to people of similar interest. My mother used to say it this way. She'd say, son, now don't you forget, birds of a feather flock together. And for many years, I thought that was Acts 2.39. But anyway, after a while, I realized that came from poor Richard's almanac. But the principle is in the Bible. It's in Amos 3 and 3. And so I'm going to be judged by those with whom I associate. So that if then I associate with people who live on the wrong side of the ledger, I will be judged as what? Thus living. And why is that important? Because it jeopardizes my influence. And therefore, it's very important. Number three, I need to watch my associates also because I will select my marital companion for life out of those with whom I associate. And the tenor of the Bible says that children of God ought to marry children of God. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 9, 4 and 5, Paul speaking, Have I not power to lead about a wife who is a sister? In Christ, Paul said, if I exercise my right to marry, I'd marry a sister in the Lord. Children of God, then marry. Children of God. We raised three sons, all of whom were faithful members of the church. We had a law like the law of the Medes and the Persians. It couldn't be altered. If I had them to rear over, I'd rear them with the same principle. And the principle was, you'll never have your first date with a non-member of the Lord's church. Never ask me. Someone says, oh, but if that hadn't happened, I understand there's some situations, and I do not want in a way at all reflect upon that. But that just happened to be some personal convictions, convictions that we had. Why? Because you select your marital companion out of those with whom you associate. At the Glen Garden Church, we decided to run a survey, a historical survey. We picked a four-year period. We listed every young person that had graduated in that four-year period. We had graduated 64 seniors from high school in that four-year period. Then we decided to take a look at their present life. Here's what we discovered. Five of the 64 had married non-faithful members of the church, and four of the five had become unfaithful. Ten had married outside the church, and nine of the ten had become unfaithful. Twenty-one married faithful members of the church, and all twenty-one were faithful members of the church. That writes volumes. That's why we watch associates. Add to that, fourthly, we watch associates because... Our lives will become enmeshed in the lives of those with whom we associate. Many of you have in your homes a set of commentaries called Kaufman's Commentaries. Brother Burton Kaufman preached for years for the Manhattan Church in New York City. All preachers get letters from prisoners, and uh, that's, that's just the situation. Well, Brother Kaufman got a letter from a prisoner. And like most of them, they were placed in file 13. Well, all of a sudden, he said in about two weeks, a man's name just jumped off of the newsprint. And it was the prisoner from whom he had gotten the letter. And here's the story. Years before, there were some boys out one night, and some of them said, let's rob the post office. One of them said, not me. 
He said, if y'all got that in mind, said, take me home. And they took him home. But when he got out of the automobile, he left his coat in the car accidentally. They went and robbed the post office. And they were so wicked that whenever they were leaving, they took his coat and dropped it by the safe. And on the strength of that circumstantial evidence, that young man was sentenced to prison. After 15 years, one of the offenders was stricken with a terminal illness and confessed to the entire robbery and said he wasn't even with us. Upon investigation, it was ascertained the truth was there, and the man was set free. Fifteen wasted years. Why? His life was enmeshed in the lives of those who lived on the wrong side of the ledger. Brother Winkler, I want to do right. Friends, I know we do. But what helps me? Never lose faith. Watch your associates. Now, ever so briefly for these. Thirdly, another reason why Moses did not go wrong is in verse 25. He said, He chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God, that's right, than what? Than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Why did he not go wrong? He realized sin's pleasures are momentary. Question. How long did it take Esau to eat that mess of pottage? But he had a lifetime of regret. How long does a person stay on a cocaine high? What about immorality? And yet what happens? People engage in these forbidden acts, and they have a lifetime of regret, and many times a damn soul. That's a height of foolishness for a man to choose the way of the world, the way of pleasure. That is so momentary. And that, too, what the expense of a non-ending, non-ending eternity. Sin's pleasures are short for a lot of reasons. First of all, there is hardly a pleasure in which a man can engage that is not very fleeting. I mentioned the cocaine high. How long do they last? You see. What about the frivolity that accompanies getting intoxicated? A few hours, then what? Misery the next morning, then utter shame. You know, it's so fleeting. So fleeting. And then sin's pleasures are short from the standpoint that they ordinarily abbreviate life. How many are dying prematurely today because of cirrhosis of the liver? Because of cancer of the lung? Why? Because they chose some forbidden act that had such a momentary pleasure attached to it. Abbreviates life. I baptized a drug addict. I mentioned a moment ago... With the, the facilities there, we dealt much with these. And I baptized one who had been incarcerated, this time in the county jail. And I baptized him one night, and I, 
And after we had baptized him and we were engaging in some conversation, I said to him, James, I said, uh, when did you begin to experiment with drugs? He said, Brother Winkler, when I was 13, I said, uh, how old are you? And uh, he said, I believe he was 30, he was in his 30s, 34. I had judged him as in his 60s. I, I, he had to be that old, I thought. I had never seen such a dissipated body. See what happens? Since pleasures are short in that they abbreviate life. You ever thought about how long a man would live if he lived to be 100 years old? How long do you think a man lives if he's 100? Multiply 100 by 365 days in every one of those 100 years. You know how long a man lives? He only lives 36,500 days. That's all of it. In this audience today, I think the average age is 50. I won't miss that far, about 50. Average lifespan now is about, with women, about 78. Let's make it 80. You've got 30 years left to, uh, to live. Multiply 30 times 365. You know how many days you've got to live? Round figures, about 11,000. Then what? Our problem is we don't give any attention to the then what. We get all wrapped up in this fleeting world and the pleasures that are so short. Why didn't Moses go wrong? He didn't do that. He realized sin's pleasures were short. And then he did not go wrong in the fourth place because he had a proper sense of values. The text says he chose what? The reproach of Christ. Greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Egypt at that time was Paris, London, New York, and Hollywood all wrapped up into one package. And it was at his disposal. He was recognized as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He had that in his grasp. But he simply turned his back on that and became affiliated with the people of God and suffered reproach with them. Someone said, that was utter foolishness. That's irrational. Well... Come with me to the Mount of Transfiguration. Did he make the right choice? Who appeared with the Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration? Moses. Now, did he make the right choice? Yes. What's our problem? We're always deciding on the moment. When will we begin to become mature enough to take the big picture in view and make decisions on the basis of the big picture? rather than just on the moment. That's why he didn't go wrong. Why? Because he had a proper sense of values. You've heard the story of the prince that married the peasant girl. He, he wanted to show her his affection. He bought her the most beautiful, expensive, ruby ring he could find. And he just beautifully boxed it and sent it to her. When she got the gift, she discarded the ring and wore the box. And I wonder how many of us are paying her the compliment of a close imitation in life. We're going around wearing these boxes that don't amount to anything. And we're really not giving attention to the values of life. 
What about mamas and daddies that are trying to get enough to buy a house on the lake and another boat, and they're letting their kids grow up in Christless homes to go out and live Christless lives? Ladies and gentlemen, we can't raise children without time. And the average American father spends, these are statistical studies, seven and one-half minutes per week with his children uninterrupted. That simply means when he lays down the newspaper, turns off the television, and gives his undivided attention to his children. And then we wonder why children are leaving the church of the Lord like flies. You know why? There's no cohesion in families anymore. There's no time being dedicated anymore. Why? We're wrapped up in this materialistic tinsel world. What's the cause? What's the base? We've never learned values. Why didn't Moses go wrong? He had a proper sense of values. And I conclude this morning by noting that another reason why Moses did not go wrong was because he kept his eye on the goal. The text says, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Does not Colossians 3, 1 say, If ye then be risen with Christ, do what? Seek those things that are above, where Christ sitteth upon the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things of the earth. And so our goals. You know, if we aim at nothing, we're sure to hit it. What is your basic aim in life? What is your basic goal? What occupies your time? What occupies your thought processes? What do you intend to accomplish? When you get there, where will you know where will you be? If you follow the direction you're now going, when you get there, where will you be? Someone says, I don't know where I'm going. That's our problem. See, we don't have goals. Why didn't Moses go wrong? He never kept his eye off the goal. He had one and he strove toward it. Would you want to go to a basketball game without any goals? Many people are playing the game of life like that. They don't know where they're going and when they get there. They don't know how they got there or why they're here. We have to have some goals, and for the child of God is heaven. You see, he entered school in September. He put a sign over his door. His roommate said, John, he said, what is that? Oh. He said, stick around. He said, said, you'll see. Everybody on the floor began to come around. I said, John, said that sign you put over your door. I said, what does that mean? Oh, he said, just stick around. I said, you'll see. The year came to close. He took the sign down, went home for the summer, came back and tacked this sign up over his door the second year. That went on for four long years. And every time, everybody would say to him all through the year, John, what does that sign stand for? Man, you've had that thing here. So what does that stand for? Oh, I said, stick around. said, you'll see. And finally, on graduation day, when the awards were being distributed, and the president said, John, valedictorian of the class, then everybody knew what the V stood for over the door. You see, he never took his eye off his goal. Every time he entered that room, he had his eye on the goal. I recommend that over the door of our hearts that we place the initial H, let it stand for heaven, and may we never take our eye off the goal. Brother Winkler, yes, I want to do right. I know that. But I struggle. I really do. 
I, I stumble frequently, I know. But I want to get stronger. We all do. What will help me? What will help me? What will cause me to mature and to grow and to develop and to be strong in Christ? Never lose faith in God. Watch your associates. Remember, sins, pleasures are short. Develop a proper sense of values and keep your eye on the goal. You may be here today and you're saying, Brother Winkler, these folks know. I don't come to church regularly like I should. I, you may be here saying, you know, I've lived in worldly, a worldly life on the wrong side of the ledger. I fully well know I've been struggling with it. I've wanted to, but I haven't. I fully well know I need to be restored. And I'm coming back today to start anew. I can grasp those helps. I can make it. And I want to come home today and be restored to faithfulness. We hope that's the case. It may be you here and you say, you know, Brother Winkler, I've been, you know, delaying my conversion, my being baptized, because I've been saying, I can't hold out. I know I can now. And I'm responding today to become that baptized, penitent believer. And that's what I know the Bible teaches me to do. And I'm responding for that purpose. Friends, whatever the need of your life is, by the grace of God, we have been brought to this hour. Brother Camp is going to lead us in one of the most beautiful songs in the entire book. We're going to sing the first and last stanzas. And I hope that as we sing, we'll take to heart, Soul, my soul, a Savior, thou art needy. And here he stands with outstretched arms.